1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2. We'll read one verse of Scripture there. And then 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20. We will read that verse as well. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 2. The apostle says, As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, that you may grow thereby. Desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 20 seems to be uh, not connected to the verse we read, but, but there is a connection to the lesson that we're going to try to complete today. Um, I'll talk more about that in a moment, but 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse number 20, the Apostle Paul is writing now, and he says, For you are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Both your body and your spirit belong to God. And it is our obligation to use both of them for the glory of God. Amen. Praise God. And so, today we are continuing on in this series that I have entitled Living in Truth. And uh, this is, uh, was supposed to be just the first week. Um, and this is now part seven of lesson one. And um, Lord willing, uh, we'll, we'll start a new lesson. Well, not next week. I'll be preaching in Houston next week. But the week after that, uh, hopefully we'll get to lesson two after two months. Uh, but we are on part seven of lesson one today. And uh, this lesson I have entitled, Your New Life. Your New Life. Let's put our Bibles down and let's ask the Lord to speak to our hearts today. I want His Word to talk to us in this service. Let's everyone lift our voices, lift our hands. Let's ask God to speak in this place today. something be said that will help each individual to hear today in whatever situation they find themselves. Lord, we give you thanks today. We give you praise. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, can we just give God some thanks one more time before we're seated here? Let's give God thanks in this house. I love you, Jesus. I praise your holy name. You are so good, God. You're so good. Amen. God bless you. You may be seated. And to our guests today, I don't always teach sitting down. Um, just some health issues that I've had of late. And uh, so I've been doing this to kind of help me to have the strength to get through these lessons. And I know the Lord is giving me strength and 
And I believe I'm growing stronger by the day through this help. But it does help me a little bit. And, and honestly, the fact is that in, in uh, New Testament times, this is the way teaching was always done. It really was. This is a fact of history. And it started with the Jewish synagogues that the rabbis would read from the scrolls. And as soon as they finished reading, they would sit down and teach. You read of Jesus doing this in the New Testament. After it was delivered to him, uh, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, he read. And then when he sat down, the Bible says all eyes were fastened on him. And it was while he was sitting down that he said, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. And so he sat down and taught. And so this is not an unbiblical thing that I'm doing, though it may not be uh, the norm. Um, it's not unbiblical to do it. So, all right, let's, let's, for the sake of those who have not been a part of the previous lessons, please let me try to do a very brief review. This is why it's taken me seven weeks to get through lesson one. It's because each week I come back and I get started in the review and end up saying other things that I didn't intend to say that are not a part of review, but they reiterate the things that were said and, and we end up spending more time going through the review, and I have very little time to cover new material. But each week, thank God, we've got some new faces that have not been a part, and I'm thankful for that. And uh, so I, I don't ever want them to feel left out. I will tell you, you can go to our website, olathetruth.com, olathetruth.com. You can go there. You can go to our media page, and uh, every one of the lessons are there. You can download them for free. And um, if I say some things today in this review that you don't understand, maybe don't agree with, I would encourage you to go back, listen to the previous lessons, and, um, and, and understand that everything I'm saying today is based on things that I took the time to teach in the last few weeks. Uh, again, remembering that this is part seven. That means I've spent six weeks covering the material that I'm going to try to just summarize for you. So I can't, again, come back and expand on all of this. And so I would encourage you to go back and listen to those lessons if there's something you don't understand or something with which you disagree. Now, we started out talking about this thing called the new birth. And we talked about uh, how that we can relate it to a natural birth. And the fact that uh, a child, even though that child does not have the mental ability to comprehend what's going on, if somehow we could grant to that child full comprehension and awareness of its situation, the birthing process would be one that would be not only difficult, but, but it would be confusing. Uh, it would be confusing to any individual. That suddenly you're surrounded with these bright lights and, and uh, you've got people all around and uh, things have changed. But in my day, uh, when, when I was a new parent, uh, they would take that newborn baby and give it a good swat on the backside uh, because they wanted it. Not that wasn't abusive. Nobody considered that abusive. It was to get the lungs to start functioning and get the child to begin to breathe. 
And, uh, and so can you imagine if the child had understanding? They're thinking, what am I being spanked for? For arriving? And then the joy on everyone else's face when the child's crying. Why, why does it make everyone so happy to see me in this condition? But the fact is that those around understand better what's taking place. And understand that this is the beginning of a brand new life. And so it is when a person is born into the kingdom of God, they, they many times don't understand the surroundings. They don't understand what's going on. They don't understand the responses of the people who are around them. But just trust and know that those around you have been through this before. And we do understand that what's beginning is a brand new spiritual life. Now we spent a week, one entire week, talking about what the new birth really is. Contrary to many modern philosophies, the new birth is not a matter of accepting Christ. In fact, I submit to you, and this, I've got to be careful because I've got new material to go over, but I submit to you that the very idea of accepting Christ is one of arrogance. Who are we to decide whether we will accept Him? If you'll look for the word accepting in your Bible, what you'll find is that we have to become acceptable to God. It's a matter of God accepting us, not us accepting God. That's a biblical premise, and I don't have time to reteach all of that. Jesus gave us a definition for the new birth, and, and I, I don't want to get bogged down in this, but for the sake of those who, have, who were not here, would you turn in your Bible, Brother Goff, and, and get for me John chapter 3, verses 3 through 5. Uh, this is not in the notes. It's not, unfortunately... Uh, set up for our uh, dear sound personnel this morning. But they've done this with me long enough to know I'm liable to throw any verse of scripture in here as I teach. It's just the way it goes. So John chapter 3, read for me. Let's start with verse number 3. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, let me just tell you, Jesus, Jesus, everybody got that? This is not me. This is not some denomination. Jesus is the one who's speaking. And he gives a very clear statement here that if you are not born again, you can't so much as see God's kingdom. Now when you break this down grammatically, what you find is that Jesus has stated a rule. The rule is a man cannot see the kingdom of God. That's the rule. But he's providing an exception to the rule. So the rule is nobody can see the kingdom of God. But there is an exception. Those who are born again can see it. So Nicodemus follows up with the most logical question. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb? Now, surely everybody under the sound of my voice agrees with the fact that what Nicodemus is saying is, what do you mean born again? Please explain this to me. This doesn't make sense. I want an answer. I want to know what it means to be born again. Right? That's the question. So whatever Jesus says in verse 5 is the answer to that question. Here's what it means to be born again. 
Now, if in verse 5 Jesus says, if you'll accept me as your personal Savior, you're born again, then that's what it means. If Jesus says, all you've got to do is believe and you're born again, then that's what it means. But whatever Jesus says in verse 5 is the answer to the question. Because the question is, how can a man be born again? How does this happen? Explain this to me. So Jesus gives the answer. Verse 5. Jesus answered. Now wait a minute. Jesus did what? Answered. He did what? Answered. So an answer comes in response to a question. Jesus is not just making a random statement. He's not just throwing something else out there for consideration. He is answering the question Nicodemus just asked. The question is, how can a man be born again? Jesus answered. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of the water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And so again, Jesus makes this rule. The rule is a man cannot enter God's kingdom. That's the rule. Nobody can enter the kingdom of God. Nobody. That's the rule. But there is an exception to that rule. And the exception is if you're born of water and of the Spirit, then you can enter. Now, I want you to see, he didn't say, if you'll accept me, you can enter. He didn't say, if you'll believe on me, you can enter. He said, if you'll be born of water and Spirit, you can enter. And so that's the only exception that God provides. That is what I call the divine exception. There is no other way to get into the kingdom except being born of water and spirit. Now, what does that mean? Well, we've got to always let the Bible answer itself. The Bible's got to define the Bible. Not man's theology, not man's ideas. We need to let the Bible speak for itself. So, when we get into the book of Acts, we find the very first time... In the church age, the very first time once the gospel has been set in motion. What is the gospel? It's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Thief on the cross was not alive when the gospel was put into effect. So you can't point to him and his salvation as a picture for us today. Just like you can't point to Moses and his salvation as a picture for us today. That was prior to the gospel being put into effect. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. After the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, the first time that we find people asking how to be saved is in the book of Acts chapter 2, verse 37. Let's go there now. Acts chapter 2 and verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? All right. Now, again, this is not our, our uh, good media personnel's fault. I didn't give them these verses, so they're having to look them up while you look them up before they get them on the wall, so be patient. Um, so they are pricked in the heart by Peter's sermon, and they ask Peter and the apostles. Now, who, who are Peter and the apostles? They're the ones that are hand-trained. By Jesus Christ himself. These men have been 
at the feet of Jesus for three and a half years. Luke chapter 24 tells us that Jesus divinely opened their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. These men don't make a mistake in answering this question. They've got divine understanding. And so for the first time, they are asked, this is after the gospel is put into place, after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, for the first time, they are now asked, what shall we do? Tell us how to be saved. If Peter's response is, accept the Lord as your personal Savior, then that's the answer. If his response is, just believe, then that's the answer. But if that's his response, we've got a problem. Because that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said you have to be born of water and spirit. So whatever Peter says, it better line up with what Jesus said. So let's see if it does. Let's go to verse 38. Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Now, isn't this interesting? He says, first of all, you need to repent. That's something everybody should do. Jesus preached it. John the Baptist preached it. That's something that's required of everybody, repent. Then he lists two things here. What did Jesus say is required to be born again? Being born of water and being born of spirit. What does Peter now tell the crowd to do? Be baptized, that takes water, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. There's water and spirit. Peter tells the people the exact same thing Jesus told Nicodemus. Peter is saying exactly what Jesus said. There's no difference. There's no contradiction. In fact, I, I, I want to challenge you today. Find for me anywhere in the scripture where people are told to accept the Lord as their Savior. That's what the majority of people say today, but that's not found in the Word of God. It's just not there. It doesn't exist. But being born of water and spirit does. Being baptized in Jesus' name and receiving the Holy Ghost is found throughout the scriptures. And it's found every time the apostles preach somewhere in the book of Acts. They do it over and over and over again. And again, I don't have time to teach all this. Go back and listen to the lessons. But I dealt with the fact you might have noticed in Acts 2.38, if you could put that back up there, you might have noticed what he said because when he talks about baptism, he doesn't say that you should say Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Now, did he contradict Jesus? Of course not. He obeyed Jesus. When Jesus said in Matthew 20, 19, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, he meant exactly what he said. He didn't mean repeat these words. He meant go do what I tell you to do, and that's baptize in the name. Father's not a name. Son's not a name. you got to baptize in the name. All right, I, I gotta, I got to move on. 
And, and again, I challenge you, find one place, one place in the Word of God where anyone ever baptized using a formula that says Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. It's not in your Bible. I don't care what translation you've got. It's not there. It just doesn't exist. This was something that man took the words of Jesus, twisted them, and put it into practice, and it became tradition. But it's not biblical. Nowhere in the Word of God did anyone repeat those words when they baptized. But everywhere that they baptized, they did exactly what Jesus told them to do, baptize in the name. So that name is the name that's above every name. For neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Do we believe that? Acts 4 and 12. There is no other name beside the name of Jesus. That's it. Philippians 2 tells us that God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. Of things in heaven, of things in earth, and things under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. So we understand that that name is higher than any name. It's higher than Adonai. It's higher than El Shaddai. It's higher than Yahweh. Either that or the Bible's lying. Because the Bible said it's a name that's above every name. So there's no other way to see it except to take the Bible at face value. And to do that, you've got to be born of water, which is to be baptized in Jesus' name. And you've got to be born of the Spirit, and that is to receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Now again, go back and listen to those I spent one whole week just dealing with this. I, I, I dealt with it in detail. I showed the name of the Father, the name of the Son. The name of, it's all in the Scripture. It's all there. It's all laid out. Go back and listen. I've got to move on into some other things today. But it is important if we're going to talk about what it's like to be in this new life that we do have to understand what it means to be born again. So then once that happens, then things begin to change. And we need to realize, just like a child uh, that is born into a family or adopted into a family, it takes a while for them to come to an understanding of their position in the family and what it means, what their responsibilities are and what their privileges are within that family. And it's that it is the same thing for every child of God. Sometimes one of our biggest struggles is the, the struggle of spiritual identity, of coming to understand who we are in Christ. Really. Because even though, even though the Lord reached down and saved us, the devil constantly reminds us of our past. And, and reminds us of how unworthy we are. And it's a fact that we're not worthy. But it's also a fact that he made us worthy when he adopted us into his family. We are now children of the king. And as children, we are heirs of God, the Bible tells us. And we are joint heirs with Christ. That's scripture. We dealt with all that. I think it was two weeks ago we got to that point in Scripture, and that's about as far as we got, dealing with what it means to be an heir of God and a joint heir with Christ. And, 
how it is the Father's good pleasure to give to you the kingdom. That's about as far as we got when the Lord stepped in and started touching some folks. And uh, then we moved on and uh, talked about last week that God has given us this power, this right to become a son of God through this wonderful gift of being filled with His Spirit. And, And we then are accepted into the family regardless of our past, regardless of our history, regardless of what stains may have been on our record before, they have been erased and we have got a brand new life. And we are children of God regardless of our stage of development spiritually. Right? A newborn child is just as much a child of the parent as one that may be 20 years old. And that may be a big gap for us in today's society, but, but in previous eras, wasn't uncommon to have one child that was 20 and one child that was newborn in the same family. It was not uncommon at all. In fact, there were usually stair steps in between. But I'm going to tell you, a 20-year-old may have had more responsibility. But he was no more a child of that parent than the newborn. And we've got to understand that. Every child may be at a different stage of development in their walk with God, but they're still a child of God. And sometimes it's easy for those who have matured spiritually to look down on spiritual children and think they're not progressing quickly enough. They're not growing fast enough. They should know better. They should be doing better. When you're forgetting the struggles you had as a spiritual newborn. And we don't throw the baby away Just because it hasn't yet learned to walk. We don't throw it away because it's just jabbering and we don't understand its words. Right? We love that child. And in fact, we think that gibberish is cute. So why is it? That some new convert comes into the church and they're saying things that we're scratching our head about. And people say, oh, you should know better than that. Not yet they shouldn't. Give them some time. Right now the gibberish is cute. They'll learn. Be patient with them. Have a little tolerance. Learn that they're still growing you know, it's, it's a drastic change to come into God's kingdom out of the world. What a change has taken place to come out of darkness into this marvelous light. It is an unbelievable transformation. This is what we talked about last week. We were not a people before, but now we're the people of God. We had not obtained mercy, but now we've obtained mercy. Drastic difference. 
between what we were and what we are. And we can pick up at that point and begin today's lesson and, and talk about some things. That, that we need to understand that God's kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. And therefore, this is a spiritual work that's going on in the hearts and lives of people. And it's a spiritual work among common folks. People who have a past. Sometimes a very unpleasant past. Sometimes a very embarrassing But they've been forgiven. And God promised never to remember that again. This is an interesting verse. I love this verse from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He goes through a list of things that none of these things he said are going to inherit the kingdom of God. These are the kind of people that are going to be lost, the apostle tells the Corinthian church. And after he finishes this long list, thieves and covetous, idolaters and adulterers, effeminate, abusers of themselves and mankind, goes through this list. And then what I love is verse number 11, 1 Corinthians 6, 11, he makes this statement. And such were some of you, but ye are washed, but ye are sanctified. Now, wait a minute, wait a minute. You read that way too fast. Start that again. And such and were some such, of you. And such, what's that next word? Were. I love that. I love that. The past tense that is used right there. Such were some of you. Paul's not saying this to bring condemnation on them. He's saying this so they can get a feel for the fact. Because see, right now at this point, in the Corinthian church's history, you read, uh, you read through all of this, you read what's going on. Chapters 1 through 3, there's a huge amount of division among the people. Some people are saying, well, Peter baptized me. And some said, well, Apollos baptized me. And some said, Paul baptized me. And Some people were saying, well, I don't even follow a leader. I just follow the Lord. I don't need a leader in my life. Read it. It's all right there. And Paul deals with this in the first three chapters of, of Corinthians and he starts talking to them and telling them, look, these divisions show carnality among you and they show that you're still spiritual babies and you need to grow up. You've been around too long to still be in this condition. In chapter 5, he starts dealing with, with, um, with sins that are in the church. In chapter 6 and 7, marital problems and and, and I, I'm telling you, he, he's, he, he just deals with all of these situations in the church. So he's not dragging up their past to shame them. But he's got these people who are feeling like they're better than others. And he's just reminding them, you know what? Everybody has a past. And the important thing is we leave it in the past. Such were some of you. Let's get that verse back up there again. We didn't finish that. Such were some of you. But, but you're washed. Here's that wonderful conjunction now. This is what you used to be. 
but you're not anymore. But you are what? Washed. Wait a minute. That kind of takes me back to what we were saying a few minutes ago, doesn't it? About being born of water. But you are washed. And he says you are sanctified. Sanctified. You know how sanctification takes place? Through the infilling of the Spirit. So you're washed and you're sanctified. You're born of water. You're born of Spirit. And because of that, he says, you are now justified, justified in the name of the in Lord the Jesus. In the name of the Lord Jesus. And by the and Spirit by the of Spirit. our God. There it is again. Those same two elements, in the name of the Lord Jesus. When's that applied? It's applied at the washing. It's applied at the baptism. It's applied at being born of the water. And he said, by the Spirit of our God, there is that being born of the Spirit, receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost. It's throughout the Scriptures, my friends. And Paul said, this is why your past is your past and not your present. This is one of the greatest lies being foisted on the Christian church today. Well, we are all just sinners. We all just continue to live as sin. Paul didn't say you are, such are some of you. Right? He didn't say such are some of you. He said such were some of you. God changed you. God transformed you. The person you used to be is not who you are today. There has been a change in your life. Look, if there's not going to be a change, why do we have to be born again? The first time we're born, we're given a carnal nature and we live carnally. The second birth ought to give us a spiritual nature to allow us to live spiritually. If we're going to be born of, a, of the spiritual nature but then continue to live carnally, what good did the new birth do? It's not about continuing to live in sin. In fact, I'm, I'm, I'm off the subject again, but this is the way these lessons go. Get, 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 your, get your Bible out again, brother. Golf, we're not finished. This is good practice for you. Romans chapter 6. This is not in my notes. But Romans chapter 6. It, it, it deals with this in such a beautiful way. And, and people really love the book of Romans. But, boy, there's some of the book of Romans they just don't seem to get. So we're going to try to help you get it today. Romans chapter 6. Let's start with verse number 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? This is the question that needs to be asked to churches all across America and all around the world. Because so much of the church world says, we are under grace. That means you can keep living in sin. Paul addressed that. In Romans 6 he said, so what then? Should we continue to sin? So that grace can just cover us? Please note his answer in verse 2. God forbid. That's the answer. Should we just keep on sinning so grace can cover us? God forbid that we would have such an idea as that. He doesn't want us to keep on sinning. Read. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? How are we that are dead to sin Going to keep living in sin. Either we're dead to it or we're not dead to it. Right. How do we die to sin? Through repentance. 
so if you die to sin through repentance, then you shouldn't just keep willfully walking back into it. Does that mean we never make a mistake? No, absolutely not. But it's one thing to make a mistake, and it's another thing to just continue to live in willful sin. So let's, let's, let's read on. Verse know 3. You, know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ hmm. were baptized into his death. There's that word again. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism oh, into death. Oh, there it is again. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in the newness of life. Yeah, so, so, so here's this whole baptism thing again. He's still talking about it. And he's talking about how that was supposed to bury the dead man. We died out when we repented. Now it's, that dead man's got to be buried. And so we are buried, he said, in baptism. Now, let's, let's skip on down because I don't have time to read this whole chapter, but, but let's skip on down. Uh, let's start with verse 12, and let's read through verse 14. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lusts thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto the sin, but yield yourselves unto God. Look, as, are, what, what are we going to do with these verses of Scripture? If the modern philosophy... That grace just covers everything, and you can live however you want to live. How do we deal with these verses? There is a very clear biblical command. Do not yield your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin. Don't do it. Read on. But yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of the righteousness unto God. Now, now pay attention to verse 14. This, this really nails this whole grace issue down. Verse 14. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. Sin does not have dominion over us because we are not under the law, but under grace. This is the exact opposite of modern theology. Modern theology is we are under grace, therefore we can continue to sin. And grace will continue to cover us. And if anybody teaches otherwise, they're putting people back under the law. Paul said the exact opposite. He said sin will not have dominion over you. Because we're not under the law, but under grace. Grace does not give us the license to sin. Grace does not give us the license to live as we please. Grace gives us the strength to live as it pleases God. That's what grace does. And that's Paul's entire argument. And so here we are. Paul writes to the Corinthians, such were some of you. You're not like that anymore. Thank God there's been a change. Thank God there's been a transformation. Thank God there's a new man walking in my shoes. 
Thank God I am not bound by the things that used to hold me captive. Thank God the addictions of the past have now been uh, uh, loosed from me. I am not bound anymore because of the grace of God. And you see, this really brings us into the part of the lesson where I've been trying to get uh, since day one of this series. And that is that, yes, we have privilege as children of God. But every privilege brings with it responsibility. With every blessing, there is an expected response. Would it really seem reasonable for God to love us so much that he would give his very best for us? The word robed in flesh, suffering and dying on our behalf. And then us not respond by giving our very best to him. Is that reasonable? I submit it's not. This is not about being under bondage. This is not about legalism. This is about love. You know, we just concluded the the, the marriage seminar. Let me just say again, let me say, there are certain things I don't do simply because I love my wife. It's not because she controls me. It's not because I'm under some kind of bondage to her. I do it out of love. And when I read in the scripture there are things God doesn't like, how can I say I love him if I just knowingly, willingly choose to keep doing what does not please him? My love for him creates in me a demand. Not coming from him but coming from my love. And that love says, I want to please Him. I'm going to fail at it. From time to time, I'm going to stumble. I'm going to fall. But I can promise you, I'm going to spend my life doing my best. Do you believe that it's impossible for God to lie? Everybody believe that? It's impossible for God to lie? then how do you expect God to look at us on the day of judgment and say, well done, thou good and faithful servant, if we have been neither good nor faithful. God's not going to lie. There is an expectation. There is a responsibility on our part. That is not legalism. It's love. It's real love. Not licentiousness. See, people who want to just live together, they want some of the benefits of marriage, but they don't want any of the quote-unquote bondage of marriage. That's licentiousness. That's pleasing themselves. That's selfishness. But there are many people that want the same kind of relationship with God. They want to, if you'll excuse the crassness, they want to shack up with Jesus. 
But they don't want any obligations. They don't want any responsibilities. They just want to run to his arms when they need him. And expect him to always be there waiting. And he is. Because he's that kind of God. But we shouldn't be that kind of people. There ought to be something in our hearts that causes us to desire to please him. To want to do our best for him. Well, praise God. In fact, Romans chapter 12. Again, I, you know, I, I, I get Romans quoted to me so often. It's crazy. But boy, there's a bunch of Romans I don't ever hear them quote. We're going to cover some of those verses today. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. I am begging you by the mercy of God that you present your body what? A living sacrifice. That doesn't sound like doing what you want, living like you please, just expecting God to overlook everything. How is that a living sacrifice? How is that a sacrifice at all? Paul said, I beg you, present your bodies a living sacrifice. Holy. Holy. Acceptable wait, 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 unto wait, wait, God. Wait, wait, what's that word? Holy. Yeah, holy. And then what's the next word? Acceptable. Oh. We've got to become acceptable to God. That's what I said a while ago. This is not the only place the scripture says this. Paul here makes this admonition, and he's not writing to sinners. He's writing to the church at Rome. And he said, I'm begging you. I am begging you, my brothers, by the mercy of God. Present your body a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God. And then he says this. Which is your reasonable service. Not this is legalism. He said this is just reasonable. This just makes good sense. This is just common sense. That after everything he did for you, that you ought to love him enough to live for him. Let's read on, verse 2. And be not conformed to this world. Don't be conformed to this world. But be ye transformed, be transformed by the renewing, by the of, your renewing mind, of your mind. That ye may, may prove what is that, what good, is that good and acceptable and perfect, and perfect will of God. God. Now, a lot of these verses we're covering. Uh, the verse that I read from Romans 6 uh, on grace. We're going to deal with that tonight in our Face the Truth Live, Lord willing. And this verse, the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. We're planning on dealing that, dealing with that in our Face the Truth Live podcast tonight, following our Sunday evening service. And so just, just a little shameless plug for those who might be interested in sitting in on a live podcast. Uh, we'll have refreshments going, but we're going to do a live podcast. We're going to be dealing with some of these questions about grace. That's one of the things that I'm going to deal with tonight is grace. We're going to talk a little bit about the, the will of God um, I'm not sure what all we're going to get into. I've got a whole list of things to, to try to discuss. Uh, I've got a list of topics we're going to talk about. Uh, predestination, uh, the elect, um, 
just just a lot. I got a whole list of things that we're going to try to cover in tonight's podcast and do it all in one hour, one hour, one hour. So I'm going to try. We'll get as far as we can get in that one hour. But shameless plug, you don't want to miss tonight. Uh, we invite you to come be a part of that. Following our Sunday evening service, we're going to go downstairs, have uh, some fellowship, some refreshments, and do a live podcast where we deal with a lot of these subjects in much more detail than I have time to address them this morning. All right, so I just wanted, I just wanted to make note of that. But I want you to see that Paul says to us, this is our reasonable reaction to the mercy and grace God has extended to us. It's only reasonable that our lives become a living sacrifice. See, Paul knew whereof he spoke. Do you realize how much it cost him to convert to Christianity? You ever think about it? Paul was an up-and-coming star among the Jewish people. Nobody had more power among the Jews than the Sanhedrin. They were the Jewish religious court. And more than that. I mean, these were the, I don't even know what term you want to use, general superintendent of the Jews. This was the, the board of presbyters, or what, what, I don't know, whatever. I mean, whatever, whatever denomination you want to look at, this, this is, these guys were at the head of it all. And they had power like, I don't know any denomination's leaders have power like the Sanhedrin had. I mean, they literally had the power to call for a person's death. And, and, and the Apostle Paul was studying under one of the main voices of the Sanhedrin court, a man by the name of Gamaliel. Paul was that rising star. Even people who don't believe the Bible, have, some of them have studied the writings of Paul and say, this man is brilliant. He understands not just theology. He understands philosophy. He, this is a brilliant mind. Paul could have been perhaps the most powerful man in Israel. But one day, he was converted. And he gave it all away. Ultimately, giving up his own life because of it. Paul knew what it meant to be a living sacrifice. Everywhere Paul went, the Jews hated him. They hated him. And even if he wasn't trying to reach the Jews, they would turn on him, stir up an insurrection of some kind, stir up a riot of some kind, and either run him out of town or try to kill him. Everywhere he went... You want to talk about a living sacrifice, and then we say, well, you know, I know God doesn't like this, but He understands it just the way I am. Yeah, He understands it's the way you are, and He wants to change you. 
I mean, how much sense would it make for me to say, you know, I've got cancer and I went to this doctor and I'm telling you, this is the best cancer doctor out there, the absolute best number one cancer doctor. Really, what kind of treatment have they given? Oh, no treatment. They just reassure me every time I go in how much they love me. They know this is the way I am. They know I'm, I've got this cancer. They know that. But boy, they love me so much. Does that even make sense? But that's the way we describe God. He loves me so much, He just ignores my sin. He knows my sin's going to destroy me. He knows my sin's going to mess up His kingdom. He knows that. But He just loves me so much, He just overlooks it all. No. Your sin is a cancer. And God loves you enough to accept you with it. But He loves you too much to leave you with it. He wants to change you. Well, praise God, it's the truth anyhow. It's the truth anyhow. Let me give you another one here. Get your Bible. Go to the book of Matthew. This one ought to be real easy to find. Chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. Now, we're not that far removed from the Christmas season. And so surely this was a verse people heard over and over and over. But I think there's, you know, I've often said little words sometimes carry big significance. I, I always say words mean things. But sometimes I've said little words can carry big significance. Such is the case in Matthew one twenty one. Read for me. And she shall bring, forth, shall a bring son, forth a son. And thou shalt thou call, shalt his, call name his name Jesus. Jesus. For he shall save his For people. For he shall save his people from their sin. In their sin. For he shall save his people with their sin. Oh, there's a little bit of a difference there in there. He didn't come to save us in our sin or with our sin. He came to save us from our sin. He wants to take that out of our lives. He didn't just come to forgive our past. He came to change our present. And thereby determine our future. He didn't just come so we could have a one moment feel good experience at an altar. And then go right back to the same old life we've always lived. That's not the purpose of salvation. He came to save you from that. He came to deliver you from your addictions. He came to set you free from your bondage. He came to change that hateful attitude you've got. That short temper of yours. He wants to help give you patience. Hallelujah. Oh, hallelujah. Ah, uh, yeah. Let me tell you something. When we were in sin, we obeyed every impulse, every leading of our sinful nature. Whatever our flesh wanted, we pretty much gave in. Now, we read these verses a while ago, but let's, let's go back and read them again. Romans chapter 6, verses 16 to 18. Read that for me. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, 
his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. Uh But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart. You were the servants of sin, but But ye have obeyed obeyed from from the heart. heart. That form of doctrine, that form of teaching, which was delivered, which you, was delivered you, being then made free from sin. So now you're made free from sin. You became the servants of righteousness. You became the servants of righteousness. Do you understand what Paul is saying in all of this? Before salvation, you served sin, but now, but now, you are to serve God. That's not legalism. That's love. Jesus looked at his disciples one time and said, you call me master and Lord. And you say, well, for so I am. But if I am your master and Lord, he said, keep my commandments. If you love me, he said, keep my commandments. That's what he said, if you love me. He didn't say honk if you love Jesus. He said, if you love Jesus, keep his commandments. That's what he told us to do. That's not legalism. Jesus bases it on love. When we were in sin, we never thought twice. If our flesh wanted something, we gave in to the cravings. But Paul says now in verse 18, and I love the way he says this, he said, you're free from sin, so now you can serve righteousness. We're doing a service. It's amazing, sometimes people come into the kingdom of God and you know, they expect a church service to only be 45 minutes and then they're, they're free. They, they, they don't want, and, and I've said this before, it, it's, it's really interesting that that doesn't apply to anything else that they enjoy doing. I, I've, I've never known of any sports fan to complain because a game went into overtime. They didn't care if the food burned up. They didn't care if supper got cold. If they're going into overtime, that means exciting things are just now happening. But unfortunately, people come to church and think, man, I've already been here an hour and a half. When's this thing going to be over with? Well, around here, it's over when it's over. And it ain't over till it's over. (laughs) And and I would say a lot of times it ain't over till the fat boy sings, but I'm not quite as fat as I used to be, so I do try to be cognizant of the time. I try to be aware, try not to keep it too long. But my point is this it's just amazing how we have a different perspective about the things of God than we do the things we enjoy. Shouldn't we start enjoying the things of God? Shouldn't it be 
that if service goes a little longer, we go home thinking, man, I enjoyed spending a little bit more time learning about the Word of God. I enjoyed spending a little bit more time feeling the presence of God. Shouldn't there be something in us that we want to be as sold out for the kingdom of God as we have been, dare I say it, dare I say it, just after Super Bowl, should I say it, that we ought to be as sold out for God's kingdom as people are for the chief's kingdom. Well, I got about half of you to applaud. Yea, I say we should be more excited for God's kingdom. That ought to be more important to us than anything else. Any championship. There's no champion, no MVP that even compares to Jesus Christ. And if you really believe that, then why don't you act that way? You don't mind dressing the way the chiefs want you to dress. You don't mind governing your life around what's going on with them. Taking time off work if you need to. Doing whatever you got to do because you're a fan. But the moment you start trying to put that in the church, you're not a fan, you're a fanatic. Isn't that amazing? What a different perspective. It's okay to be a fan. It's okay if you want to paint your body. I mean, these guys with these big beer bellies. Painted red. Their faces painted red. And they're pouring beer on each other and they're jumping up and down and they're screaming and they're hollering and they're whistling. But if somebody comes in church and says, Amen, everybody stares. Why can we get more excited about a sports game than we are about our salvation? Somebody explain that to me because I don't understand it. Listen, God's not nervous. Our noise doesn't bother him. That's what I've never figured out about these people who seem to think only one person at a time is allowed to pray. Otherwise, it's confusion. Really? You don't think there's anybody else on the face of the earth that's praying at the same time you are? Is God able to keep that straight? Then surely, if a group of us come together and we're all praying at the same time, God can keep that straight too. Maybe my idea of God's a little bigger than yours. I just kind of feel like that God enjoys when we show Him the same fervor and excitement that people are showing a sports team. In fact, I think God appreciates it if we show more fervor and excitement. I've gone where angels fear to tread today. 
But I think you understand what I'm saying. I think you understand the point that I'm trying to make. There ought not be anything for a child of God. When you think about where God brought you from and what God did for you, why should anything on the face of the earth be more exciting to you than that? And why? Why should you think that I don't have to even give God a second thought until Sunday morning church time? Live for him on Monday. Treat my coworker right. Keep my temper under control when somebody cuts me off. Oh, no, 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 no. You must be a fanatic. No. No, I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Christ. In fact, you may not know this, but the very word fan is just an abbreviated form of the word fanatic. So everybody who says, I'm a Chiefs fan, is saying, I'm a Chiefs fanatic. So if you want to call me a Jesus fanatic, that's fine. Because what that means is, I'm a fan of Jesus. I like what he does. I appreciate his blessings. I appreciate the fact that he found me when, when nobody in my family was living for God. Nobody was going to church. Nobody was saved in my household. And the Lord found me. Me. As a small boy, my parents not Christians. My siblings not Christians. But he found me and he saved me. You think I'm not going to get excited about that? That's been over 50 years ago. I'm still excited about it. And thank God I can testify that before God got finished, He did save my parents and my siblings. Before God got finished, He saved my grandmother. He saved some of my cousins and, and, and aunts. I, I, I'm telling you, God started a revival in my family. You think I'm not going to be excited about that? You think I'm not going to lift my voice once in a while? I know I'm way off the subject, and I've got to finish this lesson today. I've got to finish it today. Somehow I've got to finish it today. But let's be honest about this. Do you really think, do you really, really think, Acts chapter 3, lame man, every day brought to the temple, every day people pass by him and throw a few coins in the hat, And one day, Peter and John stop by and say, silver and gold, we don't have. But what we do have, we're going to give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And suddenly, his legs and ankle bones receive strength. Do you think that he is going honestly? I mean, be honest with me, with you. Be honest with yourself. Do you really think at that moment, this man, after having lived all these years, as a cripple, suddenly he can stand that he is going to just walk quietly into the church house, bow his head piously, and say, I thank thee, O Father, because thou hast accepted me. I don't think that's the way it's going to work. In fact, the Bible says that's not how it worked. The Bible said he, walking and leaping, entered into the temple. He went in there jumping up and down. And you would too. 
And you know, nobody in the church rebuked him for jumping up and down in that service. Nobody that I can read came to him and said, oh, no, 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 sit down, sit down, sit down. This is church. Let all things be done decently and in order. I'm telling you, it is decent and it is in order for a person to give God praise when he's been good to them. In fact, I think it's out of order to not give God praise. And the psalmist said it this way. He said, praise him according to his excellent greatness. So if God's not been very good to you, then a pious little, I thank thee, Father, might be good enough. But he's been far better than that to me. And I suspect he's been far better than that to you as well. I think he deserves the very best that we can give. I think there's nothing wrong with using the emotions God put within us to celebrate him. And his goodness and his mercy and his kindness. Glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. That's what the Bible tells us to do. Well, hallelujah. So, what he's asking of us is that we truly fall in love with him. Now, Brother Hilton didn't know this was where I was going in today's lesson when he when he chose the songs that we sang this morning, but they were all very fitting and proper for exactly where I'm at right now because this is all about love, and it's about expressing love. It's about telling God and showing God just how much we love Him. Mark 12 and 30, Jesus said this, And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, and with all thy strength, this is the first commandment. Yeah. Love him with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. That doesn't sound like I'm just going to go out here and sin and God's just going to overlook it. I'm going to show him every day that I live. Now again, I'm going to make mistakes. I'm not perfect. Though he is in the process of trying to perfect me. That's what the Bible says. And he's trying to perfect you. We haven't reached that goal yet, but he's working on us. The problem is there are too many who call themselves Christians who are not allowing God to even follow that process. They're just convinced this is who I am, this is how I am, and this is the way it's going to stay. And God's just going to overlook it. I submit to you, that's not love. It's not love on God's part to overlook your sin. And it's not love on your part to continue in sin. As I said, a cancer doctor that just every time I go in, all this, well, I really love you. Well, I really care about you. I, I, no, I got cancer, doctor. Don't tell me how much you love me. Show me how much you love me by helping me find some kind of cure. If it means surgery, cut me open. If it means radiation, hook up the machine. If it means chemotherapy, hand it over. 
I want to get rid of this cancer. Don't just sit there and say, I love you, I love you, I love you. Deal with the cancer. And sin is the cancer of human nature. And a God that just says, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. And doesn't deal with the cancer, doesn't love you. He wants to deal with whatever the cancer is in your life. Your cancer may not be my cancer. Your weakness may not be my weakness. Your flaw may not be my flaw. But we all have them. And whatever it is, God wants to deal with it. And God wants to fix it. Colossians chapter 3. I'm trying to hurry through this. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. Look, again, notice what the apostle is saying. If, if you're risen with Christ, so he's talking to those that are saved. If you're saved, here's what you ought to be doing. Seek those things which are Seek above. Seek the things that are above. Where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Yes. Set your affection on things Set above. Set your affection. Set. That's an action you have to take. Set your affection. Learn to love the right things. You've got to do this. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. Now in verse 1 he says you're risen. In verse 3 he says you're dead. How's that? Both are true for the child of God. The old man is dead. The new man is risen. If the old man is dead, that means all of that old life ought to be behind us. And there ought to be a new man living now that's doing new things, that's thinking new ways, that's speaking new words. Some of you, some of you, you know, the first time I visited a Pentecostal church, as I said, my parents were not Christians. They didn't take me to church. I, I had two religious experiences in my life before I visited a Pentecostal church. And one was one visit one Sunday morning to a Methodist church. My family went, and they only went one time. That was it. And then one time spending a summer with uh, some cousins, and they went to a vacation Bible school at the First Baptist Church in that town. And so I went to vacation Bible school, which was not really going to church, but it was the closest thing to church that I knew at the time. Those two things, that was all the religious experience I had as a child before I went to a Pentecostal church. And, and so when I walked in and people are raising their hands and they're clapping their hands and they're doing all these things, I have no clue what all this is about. I don't know what any of it means, right? And I'm going to tell you, when I got home that night, because that night my cousin who had taken me to church received the gift of the Holy Ghost fell in the floor. Um, I went home and told my dad, and my dad just went off the charts. How stupid, he said. You don't act that way in church. Now, you know, in my day, 
you didn't talk back to your parents. It's a different age today, I'm afraid, where parents seem to think it's cute for their kids to talk back. I, I don't comprehend that. Um, or if they talk back, they get time out. Well, we got time out, too. My dad would backhand me, and I spent time out. It's a little bit different in my day and age, I promise you. And nobody ever called the cops on them. And I wasn't abused. I grew up knowing my parents loved me. That was not abuse. He never really backhanded me. That was just sounded like he never really did that. But I did get I did get the uh, Board of Education applied to the seat of knowledge. That did happen. It didn't happen enough, I can tell you now. Uh, knowing some of the decisions I made as a young man, it didn't happen often enough. But it was always in love. But it was a different time. And so I was saying, you know, my dad made this comment. That's stupid. Act like that in church. You're not supposed to act like that in church. My thought was, how do you know? Because he never went to church. I think it's a valid question, but it wasn't one I was going to say. But can I tell you, the amazing thing is the night that my dad finally surrendered. He came down to the front, and he received the Holy Ghost. Guess what happened to my dad? He fell on the floor. Didn't seem quite so stupid anymore. It's amazing the change that takes place in our perspective. Things we used to laugh at, things we used to mock, things we used to make fun of, all of a sudden make sense to us, and we love those things. And we don't like it when other people make fun of them. But remember, you used to do that until the Lord changed. Uh, let's see, we, we read some from Colossians. i got to hurry. Colossians 3, verses 9 to 10. i got a few more verses here. Oh, Jesus, help me. Help me, help me, help me. i got to get this done. You're not reading fast enough. It's your lie, lie not one to another, seeing that just, ye have put off the old man with his deeds. I'm, I'm just kidding. <laughs> lie not one to another, seeing that you put off the old man with his deeds. Put off that old man. Right. Get rid of that old lifestyle. Read. And have put on the new man. Put on a new man. Which is renewed, in, renewed the knowledge, in the knowledge at the image of him, that, the created image of him. him that created him. So here's what he said. He said, get rid of that old man the way you used to live. Get rid of that completely. But now there ought to be a new man. And you know what that new man ought to start looking like? It ought to look more and more like the image of the one that created him. Do you know that's the ultimate goal for your life? Did you know that? I brought this up in our marriage seminar. Um, Friday night I introduced this thought to, the, to them don't have time to get into it this morning, but listen, the ultimate purpose for your life, the ultimate purpose for your life is that the image of God would be formed in you. That's God's purpose for you, to form your image, form His image in you. And so salvation begins that process of forming His image in us. Now we can't 
have his spirit forming an image in us that we're constantly tearing down and rebuilding with the image of our old man. Colossians 3.17 And whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. I want to ask you, some of you that are cursing people or hopefully nobody here is doing that. Mistreating folks, hopefully nobody here is doing that. Copping an attitude, besmirching people, cheating people, surely nobody here is doing that. But the apostle says that everything you do, do it in Jesus' name and do it giving thanks to God. How do you lie to somebody in Jesus' name? How do you cuss somebody out in Jesus' name? How do you cut somebody off in Jesus' name? He said do it all. Did he say all or not? Is that in your Bible? Did he say all? All. So whatever we do, we got to be able to do it in Jesus' name. Which, of course, includes baptism, but that's not the only thing. Everything we do ought to be done in His name. So we need to realize that if I'm going to treat somebody somewhere, if I'm going to say something, if I'm going to respond, if I'm going to do something, I need to be able to do this in Jesus' name. How do I do that? Colossians 3.23. And whatsoever ye what, do. Now, again, is this in your Bible? Whatsoever. 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 Do we understand the implications of that word? Whatsoever you do. Do it heartily. Do it heartily. As to oh, the we Lord. don't have a problem there. We can put our whole heart into it. It's this next part. As to the Lord and do it. not unto men. Do it like you're doing it to Jesus. So the next time you get angry and want to tell somebody off, I want you just to visualize in your mind everything you're about to say, you're saying it to Jesus. That's why I try every day to pray, set a watch, O Lord, before my mouth and keep the door of my lips. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. I try to pray those two psalms every day. Because when I speak to someone, I want to speak as unto the Lord. Well, hallelujah. So we get back to 1 Corinthians 6 and 20, which was our text, one of the verses of our text. I got four minutes. I'm watching it. I'm watching it. Read. For you are bought with a price. Here's why you got to do it, because you, you don't even belong to yourself. You're not your own property. You're bought with a price. And because he owns you. Therefore glorify God therefore, in your body. Therefore, what do I say about the word Therefore. Anytime you see the word therefore, find out what it is there for, right? This is there for a reason. It's there to show you because of what I just said. What did he just say? You're bought with a price. Because you're bought with a price, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And so this Christian life is a very practical one. God's spirit within us is going to have an impact on everything we do. We're going to glorify God by the actions of our bodies. I submit to you, even the way we dress. 
Why would someone want to dress in a way that they're exposing their bodies? How is that giving glory to God? Well, food for thought. Oh, that's legalism. No, that's love. I got to go on. I, 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 can, I can get hung up right here. Everything we do ought to be gauged by the question, will this bring glory to God? To not glorify God in both our body and our spirit. You say, well, I do. I glorify God in my spirit. But if, if we don't glorify Him in both, then it's reducing our testimony to this lost world by one half. You ever think about that? In fact, people say, well, you know, God is not like man. God doesn't see as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Well, let me ask you this question. Who are we trying to save? Are we trying to save God or are we trying to save man? We're trying to save men. And men can't see your heart. So how do we glorify God to others? They can only look at the outward. Just something to think about. As I move along with one minute left, it is amazing that so much of the world, now it's changing, it's changing quickly, but so much of the world in the time that I've grown up, so much of America, I should say, in the years that I've grown up, has called themselves Christian uh, it's, it's, we're now in the minority according to current statistics but for years those who called themselves Christians were in the majority most people considered themselves saved and yet all of that time has brought us to where we are today do you understand what I'm saying? with all these people claiming to be Christians look at where we've ended up how did that happen? Somebody's not living what they claim to believe. Titus 1.16. They profess that they up. know God. My time's up. Will you give me five minutes? Will you give me five minutes? Five minutes. How many of you give me five minutes? There's five. Keep your hand up. There's five, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30, 35, 40. 40. I got lots of time. All right. So here we go. Titus 1.16. They profess that they know God. Yeah. But in works, they deny him. This is, unfortunately, far too many Christians today. They profess. They've got a profession of faith. They profess that they know God. But in works, in they works, deny him. They deny him. Being an abominable. I'm not trying to preach you're saved by works. But here's what I am preaching. We cannot claim to be Christians and deny God through our works. The apostle told Titus to do that is what? It's abominable. And disobedience. It's disobedience. And to unto every good work reprobate. And to every good work it is absolutely reprobate. They claim to have a profession of faith. But they sure don't live it. Don't let that be said of us. All right, my last portion of Scripture, musicians come. Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16. You are a light of the world. You are the light. You, 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 you are the light 
of the world. A city that is set a on a hill. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle. Neither do men light a candle. Put it under a put bushel. Under a bushel. But on a candlestick. But they put it up on a candlestick. And it giveth light so it unto all light that are in the house. To all that are in the house. Now hang on before we get to verse sixteen. Please understand what he's saying here. Understand what he's telling us here. Yes, when he walked on this earth, he was the light of the world. But he then gave that commission to us. And he said, look, when I'm gone, you become the light of the world. And the light does no good if it's hidden. I remember some years ago a Christian rock group put out a record album. I can start using that word again because they're coming back. It's amazing. Things go around. It's a bad pun. Um, the old timers got it. Um, this Christian rock group, they, they put an out, out an album. Sheep in wolves clothing. And they had themselves among a flock of sheep with these wolf outfits on. And, and what they were saying to the world is, we're going to look just like the world, act just like the world, but really on the inside, we're really his sheep. Well, let me ask you, how does that make the other sheep feel? I mean, let's put it in realistic terms. You're going to go in to a flock of sheep with a, with a wolf costume on and just expect them to accept you? See, other sheep can't see what's in the inside of that costume. So you can go around there and tell them, I'm a sheep, I'm a sheep, I'm a sheep. They're going to say, if it looks like a wolf, and it acts like a wolf, that's no sheep. So Jesus said, don't put this light under a bushel. Verse 16, he says, let your, light Let your light so shine so before men. So shine before, before men. I don't care what men think, just so God's happy. Do you see what he says? Let your light so shine before men. men. Why? That they may that see your they good works. may see your good works. So what is our light? What is our light? Our profession of faith? No. The fish symbol on the bumper of our car? No. The cross hanging around our neck? No. That's not our light. Carrying a Bible is not our light. What's our light? That they may see what? Your good works. Your good works. That's our light. Because that's all they can see. And when you do that, what happens? And glorify your Father, which is That's in heaven. That's how we glorify God. Right. I'm not preaching salvation by works. I'm preaching works are our light. And this is the light that we are supposed to shine to a world that is growing darker by the hour. 
They need to know that there are people who still live what the Bible says. They need to know that there are people who are still concerned about others. They're still trying to help others. They still love others. They need to see our good works. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love. Again, little words carry big significance. Go ahead and play because i got to remember i got to quit. So little words have big significance. If you have love one to another, not one for another. It's one thing to have love for somebody, but it's another thing to have love to somebody. To have love to them means you're going to show it. And the world knows we're His disciples when we show that love. Not just we say with our lips, oh, I love you. But we show it with our actions, with our deeds. The words that we speak reflect the love that we claim to possess. That's the light that this world needs in 2023. That's the light God wants to give us today. Let's stand today. Let's talk to the Lord together.